Welcome to Startup Jab. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 29 of Startup Jab. I am one of your hosts, Jason Ellis. With me as always, the FedEx to my UPS, Teague Hopkins. Teague, how are you today? Uh, I'm feeling a little postal. Oh, there you go. Nice tie-in. That's good. I'm proud of you. Uh, yes, ladies and gentlemen, we have another podcast for you guys. No blab again this week because we are just living dangerously. I think that that's, I think that that's a pretty, uh, pretty bold move on our part, don't you think? Yeah, well, and, and this is, I think, actually our first time, perhaps, recording in the same physical location. Ooh, I, I'll be honest with you. I, uh, I've been avoiding this for a long time. Yeah, I don't really want to be staring at your mug for the I, whole episode. I, don't, I wouldn't want to be staring at my mug either. <laughs> well, be that as it may, I, uh, I think we've got some really cool stuff to share with you, uh, with you all this week. And we hope that you, uh, you we, hope, we hope you're having a good week. You know, with all the stuff happening, it's the new year, everybody's really back in the groove now, the holidays are past, and we're really just working. We hope you're having a good week. Teak, how's your week been? My week has, well, it's, it's, it's Tuesday, so it hasn't been that long so far, but, but so far so good. Okay, but when is, the, when is it appropriate to say to somebody, how's your week been? That's a good question. Wednesday? See, I think, I think it, Monday's it, perfect. Does it start, oh, start on Monday? So like, on Monday morning, someone comes in and you're like, how's your week going? You know, like, uh, it just started, I got coffee, so good, I guess? I think that's perfectly reasonable. Fair. I'll I'll, I'll allow it. Uh, I appreciate that. (laughs) Thank you. Your generosity knows no bounds, my friend. Uh, Well, we've got a lot of cool stuff to cover today. A little bit of news, a little bit of thought around a couple of different subjects. Uh, The first one, though, and and Teague, I'd love for you to talk to this a little bit, uh, is talking about the Drone Racing League, that that they want to be to drones what the WWE is to wrestling. And as a fan of, of Ric Flair and other wrestlers, I, I really I, now I'm interested in the idea of what you name your drones to have, you know, equal notoriety. I, I do like the idea of naming drones. I don't know if people are, are doing that yet, but uh, but so the, this drone racing league, the DRL, um, is is really trying to take what's been a hobbyist sport and and make it more palatable for viewers. Um, and I, what I think is really interesting about this is. Uh, is, you know, there's, there's an Engadget article um, that says, you know, can drone racing become as big as esports, um, which I think is really interesting given that like esports is, is thinking like, well, can esports become as big as, as physical sports? Um, but everybody's chasing somebody, I guess. Yeah. Um, and it's it's cool to see, right? I mean, this, drone racing is this, this you know, p- people control drones with a first-person view from a camera mounted on the drone, and it has a lot of similarities to video games. Of course, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, in a physical realm instead of being totally simulated. It, it, it actually has a lot of similarities also, I guess, to um, what we talked about last week with the, uh, or two weeks ago, with the, um, the, 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 e, the E Racing League, the, uh, the electric... Yeah, um, yeah, the electric cars. Electric cars, yeah. computer-controlled cars, I guess. This is actually human-controlled. Yeah. But, uh, it's interesting to see how we've got all these, you know, different... I'm sure there's a great Venn diagram of all of these. It's like it's got esports, it's got the the electric electric computer controlled cars, it's got the human controlled first person view drones, and, and all of them. You know, there's there's some overlap, and, and and in the middle there's like you know, money and explosions or something. There you go. Yes, yeah. I think that explosions and money are the center of any good Venn diagram. <laughs> um, yeah, it's very interesting to me. I, you know, it's. Given that we now live in a world where things like drones and hoverboards, although they're not really hovering, they're not, but hoverboards. They're, not hover, they're rollerboards, but let's call them That's, hoverboards because everybody calls them hoverboards. Um, which is, the story behind that is pretty interesting too, actually. Like, the reason they're called hoverboards is because there's not a single brand that is dominant because most of them are made in, in you know, factories in China somewhere yeah. with a generic brand. And so, like, the, the, the fact that a, a single term has actually come out for them, you know, it's, it's not like, like you know, everybody calls them razor, razor scooters, even though most of them are knockoffs anyway. Or like yeah. Segways, part mm-hmm. of Segways because it's a brand name. But like hoverboards is not actually a brand name. Nobody owns that trademark. It's just like what we've come to call them. Wait a minute, are you saying we could get the trademark on hoverboards? Probably not. I'm guessing prior art <laughs> yeah. would stop that. But uh, but I'm sure someone will try. Oh, I'm certain of that. Oh, that that's a whole other thing we could talk about in terms of trademarks. I, I remind me to tell you later about the Fine Brothers. I'm sure we'll bring that up at some point too. Anyway, um, getting back to my original point. Before, before we take a detour down, uh, down patent law. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Pretty much. Um, 
one of the things I think that's really interesting about it is that, you know, like any other sport, there's already a push to sensationalize it, commercialize it, and, you know, and, and sexy it up. Uh, one of the articles, the, Eng the Engadget article you referenced earlier, um, the third video down is the uh, U.S. National Drone Racing Championships. And yeah. the, the placeholder image is an awkward-looking dude surrounded by five women in bikinis. Like, we've already... I mean, the sport is not even out of the hospital bassinet, and we're already at the point where we're trying to sex it up. Do you think that that's a, a question of just how we tend to think of these kinds of sports and cultural events, or is it a, a I mean, specific it's, marketing tactic? It's it's definitely a marketing tactic. I think it's a lazy one, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's you know, I, I hate the, the, the trend of, like, Booth babes, yeah. As a as a, th I hate that, that that there's even a term for it, but I but I hate that that's a that's a thing in, in a lot of the gaming community. I feel like, and and I should have done research on this before, but I feel like there's some some conference, some con actually banned booth babes at some point. I wouldn't be surprised. Which I think is great. Yeah. Right. I, I think you know, it, it's it's lazy to to sort of assume like oh you know sex sells to anybody and because you know, just you know it's just men who play video games, which is also false. Yeah. Um. That that somehow putting a bunch of a bunch of you know women in bikinis is gonna I don't know make people watch. It's it's definitely lazy. Unfortunately, it's also effective. I mean, you know, some of the ways that you get sort of mass market appeal is certainly by applying a little bit of sex there. Um, nonetheless, it 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 also raises the question of is it more aligned with something like NASCAR versus you know presumably something that requires a little bit of of at least on the audience, is part a little bit of thought and consideration. You know, for example, it's it's I can't watch NASCAR because to me it just looks like a bunch of guys turning left all the time. I know that there's an intricate science behind it, um, but, but I know. But, but let's be honest. Do you watch Do you watch Formula One racing? No. So no. it's really not about the fact that they're turning left. It's about the fact that it's cars. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So and maybe that's it. I mean, maybe the answer is just that it doesn't matter about the subject matter in the end. Sex sells, and that's what works. And why are we going to screw the formula that? Gets a you know gets a new platform to where it needs to be. How about because it's sexist? I couldn't agree with you more. I'm just playing the devil's advocate here for a moment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there is absolutely a layer of sexism to it. There's no question because you don't see a bunch of dudes, you know, you know, tans, bron tan, bronze, like you know, muscly guys running around. It's always women and it's always bikinis and they're always hypersexualized. Right. Uh, and and it, and it's and they're not viewed as. I mean, like. It's and in particular, I think in a lot of these these the images around the the drone racing stuff, it's it's all the competitors are men and the women are are marginalized. They're yeah. not they're not viewed as, as the women are objects. Yeah, they're they're yeah. objectified exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, that's that's shitty. I agree. <laughs> well, I'm glad we're both on the same page <laughs> in that particular regard. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is the solution that we've come to. It's shady. This is why we put the explicit uh, on the uh, on the iTunes listing because, you know, when we use words like shady, and not the words I want to use, uh, gotta be careful about these things. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, anyway, no, I think it's an interesting. Like we've talked about before with esports, like we've talked about before with um, new platforms that are opening up across the board. I, I think it's very interesting to see what drone racing can turn into. Um, and I would love to see it become the kind of a, of a competition that people really do follow. I think that there's a great deal of interest in engineering and uh, technological advances that it has not only inspired for people, but also continues to you know generate real conversation around. Yeah. Um, when you well, turn, I think that one of the one of the key things you know the, the, the big question here at the top is is can drone racing become as big as esports? And I think you know we, we alluded to the fact that like the fact that they're chasing esports, which is I mean, it's growing, but it's not a large market yet. No, that's true. And and esports has such a huge head start on players. Yeah. Right. Like the number of people playing, even just the video games that that have esports leagues or, or tournaments associated with them, is is vastly larger than the number of people actually doing first person view drone racing. Right. Um, and so I think that on some level, like they're going to need to um, to get more people into like trying the sport before they're going to be able to build a, a, a large audience of people yeah. watching it. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll have to keep an eye on that and come back to it in a couple of months and see where it goes. Well, and I, I look forward to trying out the sport. I think one of the things about it, like, 
it, it actually seems like a lot of fun. I have no idea how I would do that short of like going and buying a drone and then like driving out to somewhere that doesn't have a no-fly zone, right? Because most of D.C. is a no-fly zone for any kind of drones, I think. Right. Um, and, in, and actually, it's not most of D.C. It's, it's parts of D.C. and then like anything within a certain mile radius of D.C.A. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I can't even try it out where I, where I live. But, uh, but it sounds like it'd be a lot of fun. I don't even know. It's, it's the kind of thing like are there... Are there places like you can go to a, 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 you know, a paintball field and, and rent you know markers and masks and everything for the day? Can you go rent a drone for a day on a track? It's not actually a track, maybe, but that'd be a pretty course. good business. Yeah, there you yeah. go, there you go, listeners. Free free business idea. Let us know if you start it. There you uh, go. We will we will come we'll come try it out for you. We'll beta test. There you go. We'll, <laughs> we will always come out and beta test. Um, which I think actually is a perfect transition to our sepic, the second topic for the day. <laughs> Um, in terms of where where does innovation where does innovation flourish, um, you have pulled up a really interesting article. Oh, I uh, thought you were going with the other the other article, and we we're going to talk about beta testing immortality. No, good lord. <laughs> uh, no, what I was going to say is that that uh, uh, Eric Weiner from the Harvard Business Review uh, has recently published an article claiming that Renaissance Florence was a better model for innovation than Silicon Valley is. Um, that a lot of the lessons that we once learned from that time period really should be applied now. Things like talent that, you know, talent needs patronage. Uh, the idea that the Medicis of Florence, who, if you're familiar with Renaissance uh, Italy, were some of the biggest power brokers and, and you know, I'm sure the, the subject of many an uh, uh, early gangster novel by Mario Puzo. There is actually a book that features them called The, uh, the Last Don. That's very interesting. Um, but anyway, the, the whole part of what their, their abilities uh, inc- included were the ability to find really promising legendary talent. Um, you know, Lorenzo Medici, who is better known as Lorenzo the Magnificent, was particularly good for this. Um, and he was the one who discovered Michelangelo and thus was able to help inspire an art movement. Um, in the same way that the, the folks of today are often sort of thrown to the wolves in a, in a lot of ways. Sink or swim is the, the rule of law and that uh, it's a lot harder. Even with the concept of things like accelerators or incubators, it's a lot harder to find that kind of uh, support the way that you once got, where somebody said, "Look, I'm going to pay your bills, and you're just going to go build things," and and the value is in that and nothing else. I'm sure there was still probably the oh, and also I want you to make a bust of my mother-in-law to get her off my back, but <laughs> but the idea that there was somebody there to say to you, "Just go do your thing, just go go screw up, go try new things, build and grow," um, is in many ways something we've lost. It, it actually reminds me a lot of the comparisons between um, the NIH funding model and the Howard Hughes Institute funding model mm-hmm. um, in that you know, NIH is very focused on you hit these milestones in these times and it's, it's great for incremental innovation, but for breakthrough innovation, you need um, undirected research. You need, you need to be able to fund scientists to go do, to, to follow what seems interesting. And you know, most, of the, most of the biggest breakthroughs did not come because someone was trying to create a solution to a problem. They came because someone was exploring what was possible and they found something that turned out to be you know, world changing. Yeah. Um, like penicillin. Yeah, exactly. Which is the example everybody gives, and I know that it's kind of trite, but it's a good one. I, I, it. I think it holds up pretty well. There's a reason we keep doing Shakespeare. There's a reason we keep bringing up penicillin. And I think that in both of those instances, um, you are you are right. I mean, sometimes it's just, you know, go learn and try. I mean, another part that the article brings up, which I think is, is certainly something that... Uh, we've talked about and certainly a lot of people struggle with is the idea that mentorship is really important the teaching teaching others not necessarily what to do but how to think how to learn how to experience and and you know and and gestate with that um well we've certainly talked before about how the the you know most people end up going into a career that they have some exposure to and because we don't have a whole lot of apprenticeships anymore yeah it usually means like you go into a career that's fairly similar to what your parents did or something that is very well known like you know teacher lawyer doctor engineer right right but but there's a lot of like there are a lot of industries that are kind of hard to break into if you're if you don't have some exposure to what that industry is and yeah. Jason's laughing now and, and I'm laughing simply because, because management because we, consulting we, and we marketing yeah, yeah we both yeah, have exactly. done that um, well and I think that that there is something to be said for what school tries to be you know with uh, universities that try to do internship programs and try to match you with places that are off the beaten path and Certain universities actually requiring you to take things that are so outside the normal scope of your work that you do get exposure to to right. certain areas. Um, Although it's it's get, nice, it's not enough. Yeah, right. You're getting exposure yeah. to to 
um, academic area is not necessarily getting exposure to to career areas. And right. I think that's we we may see some of that change as we have the you know the decoupling of the university experience. You 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 know for most of most of what we think of as universities serve three main purposes. It's you know it's the development of of the moral individual. It's that personal development piece. Mm-hmm. It's the career development and. and teaching career skills and it's and it's research yeah um, and as those are starting to get decoupled we may see some new approaches to that right I mean, yeah it, it you know it's entirely possible that, uh, that that the next generation will look at like okay finish high school go to a you know go to a dev boot camp work as an engineer work as a software engineer for a little while and then like decide that you want to do some you decide you want to take some philosophy classes on Coursera or whatever and and uh, it you know it, it may not be a like the the cohesive four-year experience that it is for a lot of folks today yeah That's no, absolutely. Kind of a departure but. no and I think too that in a lot of ways um, it uh, it speaks to a lot of the challenges in education right now that I think people uh, express and you know uh, one of the other points that the article makes uh, is that the idea that that we tend to focus a little too much on experience and not enough on potential yeah so what do you think about this one okay so I agree and I don't uh, I agree in the sense that there are any number of opportunities where somebody who's going to come in fresh uh, is not going to be restricted by the boundaries that experience is going to have. You know, there's the classic story of, um, you know, the guy who comes late to a math class at his university and, and he realizes that, you know, there's a bunch of homework problems written on the board. So he copies them all down. He goes home and, and two days later he shows up and he, he's, he's only been able to solve, you know, four of the seven problems. And it turns out that they were, you know, seven of the most uh, long-lasting um, uh, uh, examples of unsolvable math problems, and he solved them. You know, I'm, I'm getting the story wrong, of course, but it, it may have been two two problems, and there were nine of them. What, or is something it Goodwill like Hunting or something? It, it is. Well, it's mentioned in Goodwill <laughs> Hunting, but it is not. It's not apocryphal. It actually did happen. Okay. Um, and I think that what's really interesting is that in that particular instance, when you give a mind with the right tools an opportunity to just be told, "Go try something," and don't worry about failure. Obviously, this is a very heightened example, but there's there's real opportunity there. At the same time. You know, the the grounding that comes with experience, the understanding of why systems work the way that they do and what that can bring for you, I think is also really key. I don't think that potential trumps experience. I think potential and experience should balance one another. Because I think as you go from being somebody who has, you know, has a lot of potential to somebody who has experienced a lot, done a lot, tried a lot, that potential has translated to something you know more refined in the later years. Right. Well, and if we're if we're saying that, that mentorship is important, then we then we have to acknowledge that experience certainly plays that role. Right. Right. Um, when looking at it from a perspective of like as a startup, what can I get out of this? Yeah. One one way to look at it is to say you know potential. From, think about people from the other side who are thinking about like oh I have all this potential but I don't have the experience like I can't it's it's I can't get the entry level job because I don't have the experience that the entry level job wants. Right. Right. Um, common problem. But one of the one of the great ways that um, that startups can can sort of get a leg up is by hiring people who punch above their weight. Yeah, right. It's finding those people who have the potential that no one has actually given them a shot yet, and because you you know can't afford to hire the best person in the, in the industry, you find somebody who you 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 think that they're going to be worth a lot more than they than, than other people think they are, and yeah. you you take advantage of that arbitrage opportunity. Um, finding people who who have that potential and, and being able to spot potential and, and pick it out is a useful skill um, and I don't know I think that on some level that's it's it's it, I'm sure there's some pattern matching there I'm sure there's some data that can go into that it's a little bit money ball right mm-hmm. if you want to go the total data side of it yeah it's also it's uh, it's it's a it can be a big advantage for for companies to be able to, to get those folks who are you know no one else is going to give them a shot doing the thing that you're going to give them a shot to do and so like that's a way to get them in but also like they're going to do that thing for you better than than people who wouldn't be, than, than than people who have the experience because you know they don't know what's not possible yet. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's I think that's more my point earlier. When, yeah, when you plays into your example. Well, uh, another good one is always. Uh, did you ever read the Phantom Tollbooth as a kid? Yeah, sure. So my favorite part of that is that you know, spoiler alert: if you haven't read the Phantom <laughs> Tollbooth, you should probably pause and skip the next three minutes just to be safe. But that that the idea that you get to the end of the adventure and you discover that the whole thing was impossible. Right. I mean, I think that's, that to me has been one of the most powerful images, that uh, the mm-hmm. concept in my mind since a kid, since I was a kid reading that, that the idea that something is impossible is only impossible when you decide it's impossible. I mean, obviously there are the laws of physics that can't be broken, but even we've come up with some ways to get around them. 
Um, you know, I, I think that, that we just call it we call them Newtonian physics, and then we and then we come up with different laws of physics that govern the things that are outside of that. Right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Quantum entanglement, yeah. and all that. Um, to take a, a little bit of a turn from that, though, you know, one of the other things the article points to is the idea that disaster creates opportunity. Yeah, um, right. This is a you know this is actually not an uncommon concept. I mean, in economics, uh, people will often point to the fact that wars are the biggest driver of economic growth after you know. The battle is done because there's a lot of money that's been poured into infrastructure and, and contracting and jobs and et cetera. And that oftentimes the opportunity to grow comes hand in hand with destruction. Um, I mean, do you agree with that sort of overall? Do you think that that's necessary or is it just simply one of the ways in which we generate those opportunities? Yeah, well, so I, I was having a conversation about this with um, actually a, a listener of the show. I believe it was it was Ryan um, who is saying like this, this rings true because... You know, it's it's disaster sort of unfreezes the strat the, the social stratification of a society, um, and you know, we're talking the the article is talking about you know the Black Death decimated the city, and so like suddenly there's there are far fewer people than there is you know infrastructure to support, mm -hmm. and and you have all these opportunities, and you have a lot of a lot of vacancies, a lot of uh, you know opportunities for social mobility. And so you get people who would not have had access or, or opportunity before, but might have had the potential, getting the opportunity mm -hmm. to try things that they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. And 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 some of that, you know, that unfreezing of the of the social stratification is great for creating those opportunities for innovation because you have somebody who has an idea now actually being able to do something with it. Yeah. Um, and I think that you know that's the you know if if you actually had perfect social mobility all the time. Um, that would maybe be too far in the other direction, right? You'd have you'd have pure anarchy, um, and and that's not actually great for for creating innovation because when you have pure anarchy, people don't actually want to invest in creating things because they won't actually. They, they, there's no guarantee they'll actually be able to see any of the benefits right. of it. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I think it's it's a there's there's certainly you know, in any time there is a a, uh, a disaster or even you know minor disaster, right? Like we're not. Not not like Black Death level, but like even you know a, a downturn in the stock market, um, or like a downturn in the employment market. Sometimes that's a great time to actually start a business because, you know, when nobody else is hiring, uh, labor is cheap. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I fear that we are about to enter one of those phases. So let's get ready to hire up. Uh, time to start a business. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, the other two points here actually, I, I think in my opinion are, are not that controversial. You know, one is is embrace competition, which I don't think. I don't think anybody in Silicon Valley would have a problem with because the truth is sure. that, you know, monopolies are nice, except they get stale really quickly. And I think we've seen evidence of that in a lot of the different kinds of large business opportunities, you know, businesses that we see, the Comcast, the Time Warners, the, you know, the big sort of giant stodgy companies. Um, sometimes they get stuck. And, and a lot of that is because they've, they've boxed out their competition. As a result, they have absolutely no need to change. Right. Well, um, and most competition is not a zero-sum game. Right. Right. It's, absolutely. it's usually not a fixed pie. If you've, got, if you've got two companies that are both pushing each other to do better, usually you end up attracting more people to both of them. Even the loser ends up winning sure. more than they would have if they were going solo. I think Microsoft and Apple are a great example of both of those. And mm -hmm. in the end, you know, both, even though Apple is by far the more you know, valuable of the two in terms of stock price and overall you know, cash on hand for the company. Both, you know, both are still very competitive organizations. They've built lots of products in direct competition with one another. Um, and I think that, that some of the greatest innovations in the last 20 years in computing are direct results of that competition. So, yeah. also Steve Jobs, but that's, you know, we can deify him another time. Um, and then the other was to seek out and synthesize new ideas, right? The whole point of, of, uh, of being more than just good at what you do, but at being challenged and looking for ways that you can do better by seeking out the thinking of others who maybe, you know, have gotten to the same place through a different direction or thinking about the same idea, but in a totally different concept, I think is incredibly valuable. Yeah. Look, looking at the adjacent possible and, and, uh, and that realizing the value of, a, of an interdisciplinary education. Yeah. Realizing, realizing the, the Jason is possible. Sorry. Yes. The, yeah. the Jason is possible. As, as a, as a kid, I really did not like the first Probably second grade, I, I really thought that everybody was saying adjacent and not adjacent. <laughs> it took a little while for me to figure that out. Oh, it's adjacent. It's adjacent. It's adjacent to what? Adjacent. It's always just right there next to you. Yeah, exactly. Just sitting right next to you. I hope you all found that as creepy as I did. Anyway, um, so 
Uh, yeah, it's worth a review of the article. I think uh, if you, uh, our lovely listeners, have any thoughts or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. So feel free to write us at startupchat.com and let us know your thoughts on these different, uh, these different little elements. Indeed. Yeah. Um, here's an interesting little bit of news that got released today. So are you familiar with the company Zenefits? Yes, I am. Okay. Yeah. For those that aren't, Zenefits is a plucky little startup out of the Bay Area that has been been a big push towards making it really easy to do payroll and taxes and benefits for your small businesses. It is sort of a another in the suite of, of small business um, SaaS solutions like uh, uh, FreshBooks and, and other such stuff. Um, and as somebody who has had to go through the process of hiring a larger company to manage your payroll and manage your taxes and all that stuff, um, if Zenefits had been an option when I got started a couple of years ago, I certainly would have considered it. Interestingly, however... Their CEO, Parker Conrad, resigned, and their COO, David Sachs, is taking over. And I think it's very interesting because if you look at the article, and we'll make sure that this gets posted, of course, but if you look at the article about it in VentureBeat, they see the, uh, they post the email that uh, was sent to all Zenefits employees, and they're actually quite transparent about the fact that the reason that the CEO is out is because they weren't compliant in a lot of ways. Yeah. Oops. Yeah. Yeah, because if you don't know, insurance, uh, you're required to be uh, licensed and bonded in states that you're going to be operating in. And if you try to sell insurance in a state you're not, it carries a potential for a $25,000 fine and up to 10 years in prison, as I learned earlier today. So neither of those sound particularly exciting. I don't know about you. I don't have twenty five grand to spare on a, on a fine. So. I don't have 10 years to spare in prison. Yeah, there you go. I think that's it. Yeah. I don't have a day to spare in prison. <laughs> um, what are your thoughts on this? The, I, I think... They've been always held up as an example of disruption of a very stodgy and old uh, industry. Do you, is this just the price of doing business? So we, we talked a little bit about this before the show about um, where you draw the line between uh, illegal and immoral. Um, and I think that a lot of companies that uh, are doing really innovative things sometimes end up skirting the law, right? Uber has certainly had their run-ins with regulators in various ways. I know that um, there are also some other some other large companies that you know, when when the laws have been written with a particular uh, with a particular operating model in mind, you know things like Airbnb, for instance, yeah. has has run into a lot of problems as well. And some of that is, uh, you know, some of that is you 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 may end up running into it simply because you're you're changing the way people think about it, and mm-hmm. then you have to get the laws to change to catch up. Um, in the meantime, like maybe you are breaking some laws, and maybe you do pay some fines. The question is, you know, what are those laws there for? And and is what you're doing actually harming consumers or harming competition? Is is there a <coughs> is there a problem with with is there a problem with with pushing those boundaries? Um, and and whether that problem is is you know purely legal or, or whether there's a moral issue at stake? Yeah, I hmm. just because something is immoral doesn't necessarily mean it's illegal, and just because something is legal right. doesn't necessarily make it moral. And I yeah, think that this is this is yeah. not a rectangle and square thing. This is, right. this is definitely a Venn diagram, yeah. without a doubt. Um, I, it's interesting to me. I uh, now knowing about the compliance issue, I I have some very I, I, have, I have two polarized feelings. One is, you know, it's good to disrupt. I think in a lot of times, breaking something and starting over provides a lot of benefit. At the same time, the reason that there's compliance in, you know, in the insurance industry is because it's really easy to sell somebody on something you don't actually have the ability to back. <laughs> and it's really easy to take a lot of money and then disappear. Yeah. And I think in this particular instance, it was probably not the latter, but it definitely wasn't really the former. I think these guys were banking on the fact that they could hire one guy who was licensed and bonded in one place, bonded in one place and then have them sell insurance all over. Mm-hmm. Um, which raises some interesting questions because it wasn't available in Washington, D.C. originally, in part because they couldn't get the bonding and the licensing uh, set up properly uh, before opening up. Mm-hmm. So, I, I don't know. I, I think it certainly raises some interesting questions. I think the fact that they're being incredibly transparent with the reason that their CEO is out is because he advocated for a culture of breaking the law. <laughs> yeah, that that's... There, there's There's some... As, as, a, as a cultural practice, that's maybe not the best idea. Well, maybe it is. I would make an argument. Uh, tell me your thoughts on this. I'd make an argument that in an instance where you know that things are bad, right? You've been caught red-handed, and the company and the board realizes that 
listen, I have to assume that they know, but let's pretend for a moment, because we can, that they didn't. Um, I think that, that getting in front of it by saying, we screwed up, we've hired... Oh. I, I'm totally with you on okay, that. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm more on the idea that, like, as a CEO, if you're fostering a culture of breaking laws, that 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 seems like a bad choice in the first place. Oh, couldn't agree more. Yeah. He's the founder, though. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's not as though he was hired and then he was, you know, yeah. he yeah. was uh, doing these shady things. He started doing these shady things. The company, in fact, is is in many ways sort of poisoned by the fact that, that he started this company on... Uh, less than legal terms, if that's the case. Yeah. So there's there's a couple of different questions that come out of that. One, so you know, one is how do you recover from that? Right? Mm-hmm. Is there is there going to be a huge flight of of Zenefit's customers to other companies providing these services? Sure. Um, or employees. Or employees, right? Another mm-hmm. question is, you know, once employees find out that the company is kind of shady, do they actually still want to be associated with that, or has part of it been that you know they are they've been in that culture for, for the you know the whole time, and so presumably. Yeah. Some of them, if they knew beforehand, were okay with it, and they're okay with it now. Yeah. Um, but and th- there's also the question then of of you know, as as a as a cultural practice, you know, do you do you want to draw a line between disruption and and law breaking? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I guess one would hope. I, I mean, guess there's there's you know personal distinctions. I you know there's a question of could it yeah. have grown this large if they actually adhered to laws? Yeah. Um, and then part of the question is, is that fair? <laughs> right? Is it fair that they actually get to go this large and there aren't consequences, even though they broke laws? There will be. I, 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 there may not be as many as there should be, but there are going to have to be consequences. Do you, but, I, but do you honestly think that those consequences will, will, will knock them down to the size that they would have been if they never broke laws in the first place? No, I don't think... No, I, I, I agree with you on that one. I think That's that, kind of sending the wrong message, like if you're a regulator, right? Like... Well, you're better off breaking the laws and then paying the fines later than like adhering to the law in the first well, place. Well, there is a philosophy among startups, you know, ask for forgiveness, not permission. Mm-hmm. In in a lot of ways, we actually have a culture that that advocates for screwing up, sometimes intentionally breaking laws or breaking regulations, and then just apologize for it, mea culpa, and pay a fine and move on. Yeah, okay. I, I see that. I think, you know, and this is where we get into a little bit of the, the morality question is, um, you know, who's being hurt by the, the laws that you're breaking, right? So, like, if you if you are a startup and you are taking credit card information and you are not uh, protecting it using, what's it called? Um, you're looking for a word. I don't I'm know looking the... for a word. It's okay. the, the, the standard for protecting credit card inf- for personal personal identifiable information. PCI compliance. There you go. That's the one. Okay. I had no idea where you were going with that. All right. Thank if you. You're, if you are collecting credit card information and you right. are not PCI compliant right. and somebody's credit card gets stolen, their identity gets stolen because you didn't protect their information, like, that's, I feel like that's pretty immoral. Yes. Right? Like, that's that's not just like, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to be disruptive and we're going to kind of skirt the laws. Like, you're actually putting your customers at risk. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I, I think that they're going to have some really tough questions to answer. Despite covering themselves, it may be that there's a mass exodus of customers and they have to shrink back down. I don't know. I think that that a lot of times people are willing to overlook um, obvious, you know, rule breaking because it provides a convenience. I think, you know, in gray areas where there isn't really anything well defined, you get companies like Uber that can come in and, you know, to their credit, do a really effective job in horning in on existing strat, you know, on existing uh, structures and just subverting them. By saying, hey, you, you're a 1099 employee and you've got your own car, but here, come drive for us and we'll pay you better than if you went through the process of being a taxi. And oh, by the way, nobody likes taxis because generally speaking, they're not nice people in there. So you be nice and we'll rate you on it based on your niceness. And, you know, I mean, I'm clearly just losing my mind because Uber drives me insane. Sorry. (laughs) Anyway. No, I think it's a a reasonable point. Um, I I also think that... um, we have to, you know, we have to acknowledge that this is not just a startup thing, right? Like, right. there are plenty of businesses that just straight up break laws, yeah, right, because it's because it's expedient, because it, it you know, it makes more money, um, and when the penalty for breaking those laws is not as large as the benefit you get from breaking them, it's sending some weird signals about uh, about about incentives. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and in the end, I think uh, this is a question that is going to continue to dog the startup industry for a very long time um you know Zenefits is the latest in a series of you know 
very public companies have, that have skirted laws and you know uh, done things that are knowingly immoral. And I think as a culture, both professionally and on a larger scale, call it nationally, uh, how okay are we with that? Mm. So yeah. there we go. Open question. Indeed. To be to be determined. Yes. So so let's jump into something that's a little more uh, more out there. This is this is the article I thought you were referencing earlier. No, um, but I, I see where you go with that. Yeah. <laughs> so so you were saying about yeah we'll beta test that. Um, yeah. There's a new startup uh, that is that is promising to or at least hoping to uh, transfer people's consciousness into artificial bodies so they can live forever. Um, the startup is called Humai. I don't know how, how to pronounce that. Humai Humai. H H U M A I. Um, I, maybe that's a that's a portmanteau yeah. of human and AI. Could be. Yeah, I, that's my. I'm with you on that one. I don't know. But uh, but yeah, so they're, they're they're basically betting on on being able to take human consciousness and, and replicate that in an artificial brain and an artificial body, um, so that they can basically download your 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 consciousness from your physical brain right. into a into an artificial machine, and and then you just you know you replace. The machine parts and you just keep living and you live forever um yeah i gotta be honest with you this is the this is the beginning of every schlocky sci-fi novel i've ever read every and, single one and every single one and perhaps the you subject of three out. three of the four screenplays i tried to write in college <laughs> well there you go the fourth one was a lovely rom-com about a, a brit who meets a, an american and all sorts of craziness happens um Nothing I'm saying, by the way, is true. I've never written a screenplay. That's not the point. No, that's too bad. I know it would be great, though, right? Anyway, you got to you got to write a, a, an audio play, and then we'll, we'll produce okay. it here. There's a thought. <laughs> well, I, I'll say this: I I think it's an interesting concept. Um, I think one of the challenges that I have with this, if you read the article, is that the founder is really light on details and specifics. He yeah. doesn't have a scientific background. He describes himself as a quote serial entrepreneur, technology visionary, and internet marketer. End quote. So I'm gonna call bullshit. <laughs> uh, on this particular company, quite possible. Yes, um, there, there is. You know, he's 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 he believes, and, and the article notes somewhat optimistically um, that the company will be able to resurrect the first human within the next thirty years. Um, this is not the first. This you know, this is not the first company I've seen promising to basically like some version of immortality sure. within our lifetimes. Well. And it's not just our lifetimes where this has been promised. I mean, cryogenically freezing your body and you know freezing your brain has been a weirdly popular thing since post World War II. I mean, the well, we still don't know how that's going to pan out. No, and it's not great, Bob. Not great. All right. No, I, I think that that you know we're talking about a society that is so afraid of death, ours and and really the larger Western civilization that we are talking about going to virtually every length, including condemning ourselves to a, a, you know, ones and zeros existence because we're that afraid of dying. Um, I don't know that I have necessarily a different opinion on that, but I got to tell you, I, I think that anybody who's spending their time trying to subvert death by downloading me into a, a computer, I have serious questions about whether I'd want that to be my existence. And, and it also brings up questions of identity. Is that still me? Did you play, oh, what was it called? Um, Soma. Oh. Okay. Soma's a game that just came out maybe five or six months ago. It's okay. totally worth looking at. And the concept is a guy gets into a car accident and he goes and he reviews uh, his scans with the doctor. And as he's going under for his latest scan, he suddenly wakes up and he's in an underwater base a hundred years later. And it turns out that his body has been downloaded into a, excuse me, his brain has been downloaded into a robotic body. The game itself is a horror thing. You're trying to dodge these sort of grotesque monsters that are, you know, trying to keep you from saving the last of humanity. It's, the game itself is actually interesting, but the philosophical questions it brings up are particularly interesting because it asks the question, like, what's the original you, right? right. In the context of this game is the, the person who was first uploaded, quote-unquote, in 2015, is he the real, you know, I think the protagonist's name is Simon. Is he the real Simon? Is the Simon that eventually sort of, you know, gets jettisoned into, uh, uh, you know, underwater and, and now is the player, that is the, the character the player is playing. Like, is he the real Simon because he has continuity of memory between that upload and this moment? Like, there's a lot of questions around who's the real person. So when you make a physical copy of a conscience, 
uh, consciousness, excuse me, is that is that still the same person? Well, you, you know how you can tell. Oh yeah, please. It's, it's whatever Simon says. Oh God. Oh God, you hurt me. This is where so I need much. the rim shot sound effect. Oh, I'll give but I'm ching. Anyway, yeah, no, I I think uh, I think it raises some interesting questions of identity, and I think it raises. I think it does. Yeah. yeah. Um, not to mention the fact that what is it to really live is probably something that that brings up. I think that's beyond the scope of a one-hour podcast. Oh, I think it's a two-hour podcast. <laughs> I think we can do it in two hours. I don't know. That's just my guess. I, I This is a topic that has been covered by many a sci-fi writer. This is a topic that is, is a very interesting and, one and to explore. And many a philosopher and many a, a religious figure. And Precisely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, Open questions. Indeed. I would say this, and I'd love your, your response to this. Um, I think that this guy's probably full of crap. I think that this is a big PR play, and he's trying to get a lot of money and attention. Uh, I cannot disprove that. There we go. Science at its best. <laughs> Accepting the null, hypo- not null hypothesis. Right. Yeah. Occam's razor. Simplest explanation is usually <laughs> is usually right. Could be. Yeah. Um, moving on from the uh, the articles that we have, we have a couple of questions from Quora. Yes. Moving on from open questions yeah. to questions we might be actually be able to answer. Spectacular. Uh, you want to read this first one? Sure. So the first one is a question about, uh, as, as a non-technical co-founder, what should I be looking for in my tech co-founder in terms of traits, skills, and et cetera? Mm. And, and et cetera? Just et cetera. Et cetera, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I like having a drinking buddy. Uh, if, if you're a non-technical co-founder looking for a technical co-founder, maybe sure. just someone who's willing to work with you. Sure. Because that tends to be a pretty high bar just off the bat. Yeah, I'll take that. Yeah. 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 Um, no, I think, you know, we're being a little bit glib, but um, I think that broadly the question of if you're not a technical person, how do you evaluate the, the skills of a technical person? I think, so on, on, you know, on surface level, you certainly want to evaluate their non-technical skills the way you would evaluate anybody, right? Right. Um, you want to make sure that they're a good cultural fit for your intentionally designed culture, which you presumably have written down somewhere, so you're not doing the we'll know it when we see it mm-hmm. thing, which gets you into all kinds of other trouble. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but in, in terms of evaluating tech skills of a co-founder, um, on some level, you can, you can look at the results, right? Like what they're actually producing. Yeah. Um, then the, the challenge you sometimes get is you get folks who are good at creating something with a, with a shiny veneer, but under, under the surface, it's spaghetti code that nobody else ever wants to touch ever, mm-hmm. um, which is not a great foundation to build on. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I, maybe I'm not the right person to, to to answer this because I actually have a little bit of a tech background. So I would I would look at code and I would sort of look at the the kinds of things that they've done and, and I would look at their GitHub profile and, and things like that. Um, if I'm evaluating higher level stuff, I'd probably bring in an expert who I know and trust already to sure. to do a code review of some kind. What about you? Well, I think part of it is actually you as the non technical co-founder have to actually ask yourself what are you really looking for. So as an example, uh, I know that there are some non-tech co-founders who think that they're hiring a general contractor, right? That, that these guys who, you know, like like the same way that I would, I would hire somebody to, uh, you know, renovate my kitchen, fix my, you know, fix my bathroom and paint my house. I think a lot of times people have the perception that when they're hiring a technical, or when they're bringing in, I should say, a technical co-founder, that they're bringing sort of a one-size-fits-all, quote-unquote, tech person. Yeah. And that's a perception problem that you have to get past first. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah Cause that's, that's not, that's not a co-founder. No. Um, and that is hiring. Yes. And when you're bringing in a co-founder, you're not actually hiring them. And I, I'll note that the question didn't, didn't actually say hiring. So right. maybe we're, maybe we're introducing that, but, but, uh, it, it is, you know, it's, it's, it's finding a, a technical co-founder to partner with. Yeah. Um, and so really the most important things are, are, can you partner with them, right? It's, it's, it's the questions sure. of like, what do you look for in a co-founder period are the, are the big ones. Yeah. Um, the technical skills, you know, they need to be there, but um, it's actually not that, I, I don't think it's that hard to evaluate somebody's technical skills. No. It's certainly easier to evaluate technical skills than to evaluate business skills, which is one of the reasons right. like finding someone who's willing to work with you at all, you know, is, is a good start, right? Either they trust you in your reputation or you have enough traction to prove to them that you actually know what you're doing on the business side of things because, when the technical side of things fails, you find out pretty quick because the code doesn't run. When the business side of things fails, you might not even notice until like five years later when yeah. the business has been run into the ground. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. No, I agree. I think, too, that on the technical side, you can look at – I mean, 
the advantage of a technical co-founder is they're going to have examples of things that they've worked on. Yeah. Um, so whether it's projects that they've actually physically built or companies that they've helped create and you know, that you're able to go and actually dive into something, I think is really important. And the inverse is also true, right? If you're the, if yeah. you're the business co-founder, you should also have examples of things you've done before, sure. companies you've built. You know things you've produced, right. events you've 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 run, right. things you've marketed. I had a business last year that generated X hundreds of thousands of dollars in sales every year. Blah blah blah. Absolutely. Right. And if you don't have any of that, then you need to do it with the business you're working on now and say, I have this much traction already, and we haven't even built anything yet. Right. Come build it. I've already got customers. Actually, that would be nice. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you want to find a technical co-founder, build the business and get everybody interested, and then bring it, bring them in and go. Okay, now you build it. Yeah, That'll end well. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that, 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 and that actually is is. Like that is the best case scenario, right? Is is yeah. and in a lot of ways, like if you know, most most new startups are not actually like not actually dependent on the tech. Yeah. Right? Like if you're if you're doing something that you think there's there's some actual novel, you know, algorithm or something, you're you're probably not starting without a technical without a technical co founder, right? right. You're, pro you're probably the technical person if you think there's there's something, you know, actually technical in it. If you're creating some kind of a web app, like mostly you're just mixing and mass matching pieces that have been done before, and you can probably do a lot of that without actually having anybody write code. You can learn enough to you know mock up a website that you know has some some Google Forms on it where sure. the, the data gets sent to you on the back end, and then you manually process it by hand and email out the results. Yeah. Right, and that's probably good enough for your first like fifty or hundred customers. So go get those fifty or hundred customers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I think too that that you know this really does come back to the lean thing. You gotta you gotta prove concept. You gotta go and yeah. make sure that you're solving for a problem. And then when you can present that to somebody and say, here's a problem that we're solving for, then you bring up the other questions around, are you the right person for me? Am I solving the right problem? Uh, tends to th Those tend to go hand in hand with one another. Yeah, um, so yeah, I think, you know, again, I think it all comes back down to, can I go drinking with this guy? Uh, I don't really mean yeah. that. Well, I mean, and, and, and you know, that, that may actually be a good test for some people, but like right. you, you have to find the test for you. Right, so it has to be someone who fits the culture that you're trying to create in the company. And yeah, if that's the culture you're trying to create. Awesome. So, I, would, I would be looking for a different culture, and so my questions would be slightly different. Um, yeah, to be honest, um, the, be the someone, is it is it someone I can play video games with? Right, no, that's not actually. It. Although <laughs> you know, I can play games anytime. Um, no, in, in fact, actually, to to point to something that is uh, a really good example of of where you don't need to have somebody that you can go drinking with. Um, uh, the two guys who who created MythBusters, uh, Adam Savage and right. Jamie Heineman. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're not friends. They're not friends. When they were doing Mythbusters, they were very good coworkers. They were very good at building things. In fact, if you look at early episodes of Mythbusters, they actually highlighted the fact that they disagreed on a lot over time. Um, it, it, it's really interesting because in interviews they've said it's not that they hate each other, but they're not friends. It's a very distinct uh, differentiation. They don't spend time vacationing with one another or their families don't spend time. When they are working, they are working and they're good at working with one another. And now that they're done, they're done. And they're not going to go back and do other projects together. And for some people, that's actually a really valid way to you know, co-run a business together. It's, I don't really want to go drinking with you. I, I want to go do the work with you. And then when we're done, I'm going home and you go home and we need distance from each other. Because when I see you tomorrow, I need to put you in a very specific place of business, not overlapping business and friendship yeah well and and some people talk about the um you know your co-founder is like your spouse right and i think that's a valid comparison but if you think about it most people don't work with their spouses so it's, right. they're spending one one large chunk of their life with one person and right. another large chunk of their life with somebody else but neither of those people has to be you know all things to everyone right, right. You, you, and and in some cases it is right some some you know spouse teams found companies together but that's that's not required no, and in fact, I'd, I'd be very interested, not that I have this data accessible to me, I'd be very interested to see of companies that are co-founded by, you know, couples, you know, uh, two spouses, um, how long does their marriage survive uh, as well as their business? What's the, correla what's the correlation yeah, yeah. between your marriage continuing and your business thriving? And is there data to be gleaned where, one, you know, the marriage fails but the business thrives and now you're stuck with somebody that, you know, I mean... I, I think it's an interesting challenge to look into. I'm sure somebody's done a study of it at some point. And if not, somebody should fund it. I, I don't have the money to fund it, but somebody should fund it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a good one. Yeah. Um, so another question that came up uh, from Quora that I'm really interested to ask your thoughts on. Uh, the, uh, the question is, quote, my prototype is done. I aim to take on clients from another country. 
Can I do this without actually being based there? End quote. Uh, apparently, they, uh, the founder has a day job they need to keep, and they want to employ some freelancers in the country to do the legwork, for example, taking the prototype to the respective clients and showing them the product. Can this be achieved? Without knowing, by the way, special circumstances around what the product itself actually is. Right, which, which might be useful to know. But um, Yeah. Yeah, so, so this was, um, I was asked to answer this question because, uh, because I'm in the Lean Startups group on Quora. Um, but, uh, so I'll, I'll answer it from a Lean Startup mm-hmm. perspective. Um, you know, the, can, can this be achieved? Um, the, question, the answer is almost always yes, it can be. The question is, should it be? Um, yeah. is, or is there a better way to do it? And I think, you know, yeah, it, it, it could work this way. I, I wouldn't necessarily bet on it working that way for a couple of reasons. Um, and the first one that comes to mind is when you're, when you're doing, when you're taking your prototype and putting it in front of customers, you get a lot of valuable data based on what their reaction is to it and what their objections are. Yeah. And if you're filtering through that through freelancers, not even just like employees who report to you, but freelancers who, whose incentives may not be aligned, you can bet that a large portion of that feedback will not make it back to you um, and so you're basically taking that that really important feedback loop of creating a a, a product and, and designing and, and iterating and, and building something that people actually want to use getting from your your first you know your first model to something that actually works as quickly as possible you're taking that feedback loop and slowing it down yeah because you're throwing out half of what comes back into it it's kind of like if you if you had a you know a, a, um, a water mill and you diverted half the stream to you know something else to freelancers yeah <laughs> i don't know to, you diverted half the stream to crops you're and, watering and, freelancers and, and this 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 analogy totally broke down that's okay um half of it to windmill half of it to a water park there you go at least then you're having fun absolutely water slides there you go that's good you can you, tell it's winter here because we're thinking about water oh parks man, i can't come fast <laughs> enough no i agree i think um you know the other thing that 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 this particular instance has me raising eyebrows is the idea of um well, the idea of being a, uh, you know, uh, separate from the country in which you're exist, you know, you're trying to sell. I mean, what's the value of building a product you can't sell outside your door right now, right? Why would you go and why would you build something in America for something in India unless you either intend to move to India to go sell it or you have a ground game you're really, really, really confident in? Um, it strikes me as being a little scary. Um, oh, definitely scary. Yeah. I, I see. I can see the the, um, the business case for building something for a market that you're not part of, right? I think that sure. you know people do that all the time with with creating tools that that some other market will use, right? Like yeah, a lot of you know some some startups create tools that solve their own problems and they try to find more people like them, which is great because you know they are a user of the product and they're getting some of that feedback loop early on. Yeah, but I think probably more people build products for people who are not like them, right? You have, yeah, you know, you have uh, designers. Or developers building products for for you know gyms or something, yeah. right? Um, and and so you're you're like you're already you're serving a market that's not your market, and so what's the difference between that and serving a market that's just just happens to be geographically different, right? In some ways, totally. if, you're, if you're solving a problem that you're very familiar with, you're solving it for people in another country, you might actually be closer to the problem than if you're solving it for a different industry. Right. No, I get that. I just I think that. Even here, I mean, I think that there are cultural challenges that you can't address when you're not physically there. If you yeah. are even in America and you're building something for Canada, they are actually two different countries. There is, what? A, I know, I know. It's not just, it's not just a big forest. I promise you, they have lots of intricacies. Did you know, for example, that there is a part of Canada where they speak French a lot? I was shocked too. I was shocked. I thought, I thought most of their population was bears. <laughs> We've been watching a lot of South Park. Um, <laughs> No, I just, I think that, that for me, the biggest red flag is how can you sell something like that when you could very easily do something, say something, create something that is either ineffectual because you don't know some of the local, you know, customs of the culture, uh, or even say something offensive because you don't realize that, you know, it's, it's, it's a pot. This, this one is, is apocryphal. This one is not true, <laughs> but there was a longstanding story that, that the Chevy Nova didn't sell in South America because the word Nova in Spanish is Nova, which means no going. Um, yep. That is that is not true. The Chevy Nova just sucks. <laughs> so there's that. But but it does raise the larger question of there are times where you're going to name something, some, you know, you're going to call something by a name which has 
different meanings across the board, and you have to be very careful about it. I, I know that back at Hulu, we, you know, the word Hulu in Mandarin referred to a gourd, a holder of precious things, which was representative of what we thought Hulu would be. It was the idea that it was a, a, a place that you would hold the special shows that you would always want to want to follow up on, the, the characters, the stories. Whether you, you like that or not, that was the image that they wanted to create. Teague is rolling his the, eyes at me the, while I say the this. The image that they wanted to create was not aliens sucking your brains out? Well, that was later. Yeah. That was different. And when we had Alec Baldwin and later Will Arnett, that helped. <laughs> um, but it, it, it was something like in, I want to say, Swahili, it means the word expensive. Right? I mean, it's one of those things where like as soon as we announced yeah, the okay. word Hulu, sure. the internet went all crazy finding what the word Hulu meant in lots of other languages. Yeah, okay. um, and so... You know, not that Hulu was international, didn't matter, right? It actually had no bearing on... Right, because it's geolocked anyway, right? Right, it's, it's, yeah. US, <laughs> it's U.S. and territories only. Um, but if Hulu were launching internationally to start, and we went with the name Hulu, you know, we've lost anybody, we've lost the Swahili-speaking markets <laughs> off the bat. So I, well, I just not think... not necessarily, right? I mean, you can... You can well, we, that, that, that's, that's maybe a tangent too far. Right. My point being, um, there's lots of really interesting uh, challenges that that brings up, Um I wouldn't do it. I would say that that in the end, um, you know, we uh, we're in a in a position now where you know the U.S. market is is vibrant and able to still handle a lot of innovation. Um, I think if you're building something for another country, probably best to at least go to that country for a couple of months and get things you know lifted off. And if you you can't get traction unless you do that, then I would reconsider the idea. Maybe not give it up, but I give it some real consideration. Yeah, I, I think it, there's a lot of you know the, the farther you are from the people you're trying to serve as a as an entrepreneur, um, the, the more difficulty you're going to have. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I think in the end, building something's really hard, and it's really hard to do distantly. Yeah. Um, well, actually, building something is not that hard. Getting people to use it is hard. True. Building something uh, comparatively uh, easy. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I, I, that I'll grant you. Um, but I think in the end, it's if it's worth doing, it's worth finding a way around. Find a way to, to, to get seed funding or or some sort of capital so that you can give up your day job and really go pursue yeah. it. Yeah, I, I think that's the other piece of it is having the day job you need to yeah. keep. It's even if you're in the same even if you're in the same market and you're doing all this stuff, like having a day job. Yeah. While trying to start a business is like, well, it's like it's like trying to be in school while working. Yeah. Right. I mean, people yeah. do it. It's and really people are successful at it, but it's yeah. really hard. Yeah. Well, we were talking earlier today about being overcommitted. That's a great example of where you're you're really pushing the line there. Yeah. Um, the other thing I would point out, because I think it's important to note, is uh, one of the other answers that has already been written about this is when you're playing internationally, there are international legal ramifications that you may not know about. And so if you are going to go and build something that is not in the country in which you are familiar with the commerce laws, you absolutely have to hire a lawyer that specializes in international trade and business practices in order to go identify that the thing that you want to do and the way that you want to do it is legal within those confines. So, you know, there's that. Yeah, minor considerations. Exactly. Anyway, I think we've... Yeah, you want to make sure that it's both legal and ethical, right? Yeah, well, I, I was going to say, I think, I think that we've, we've covered every base that we can in showing <laughs> why this can't work. Uh, <laughs> I mean, hopefully it will. Listen, I think somebody who wants to try something in a new country and, you know, wants to find a way, maybe they find that magic formula for hiring people remotely and making it work. It's possible. It's yeah. not likely, not, but it's yeah. possible. But but there's that piece of it that like if if you really 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 have to do this like you like you have to do it it's yeah. not a choice it's something that you feel compelled to do yeah that's awesome because everybody else is going to be scared away by everything we just said exactly. so uh, there's not a lot of not, not a lot of competition for it yeah absolutely um, well with that I mean you know we're coming up to the end of our time Teague and, and yeah. I know that that sitting here and staring at me while we've been doing this recording has been really hard for you oh, I get that. that bad. oh thank you. Um, well, again, I just want to throw out there, if uh, you, our listening audience, have any questions you'd like us to address on air or you'd like to uh, come on the show and ask them, feel free to reach out to us. Uh, Teague, how can people get in touch with you online if they have any questions or want to follow up? You can find me online at teaguehopkins.com. That's T-E-A-G-U-E-H-O-P-K-I-N-S. Very cool. And you can find me uh, at Jason Ellis on Twitter. And, of course, you're free to email me at my work address. That's Jason at B-R-L-L-N-T dot co. And that's brilliant dot co. Um, be sure to, of course, uh, sign up for our newsletter if you haven't already. Uh, tell your friends all about uh, the wonderful, wonderful co-hosts on Startup Chat. And, yeah, I'm being a little bit self-centered here. I'm okay with that. You should be, too. People, people like you, Teague. 
I, I'm okay with you with you repping me all you okay, want. Okay, fair. Um, in addition, we'd love it if you guys would leave us a review on iTunes. And, of course, uh, anytime you guys want to post about us on social media, give us a shout-out so we can uh, give it a thumbs up and give it a retweet. Um, and with that, I think we're going to close it out. Anything else before I've forgotten uh, that I've forgotten before we close? I think you covered it all. Very cool. Well, you guys have a great day, and uh, we'll see you next week for another episode of Startup Chat. Thanks for listening.